Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. It is Thursday, the 13th of January in the year 2022 today. So, Alan, Happy New Year. And happy COVID-free New Year to you too, uh, Darren. Thank you. Well, today we're going to continue our tradition from previous years of recording an episode that looks back over the previous year and forward to the next one. So let's get straight into it and talk about 2021. And I want to divide up our analysis into the issues that affected international affairs generally and then focus a bit on Australia. So starting with the world at large, Alan, I want to ask you three questions. And let's start with the headline first. What did 2021 teach you? Well, for me, the biggest lesson of the year was that the United States has ceased to be a constant for Australian foreign policy and has become a variable, and I think that's a step change. You know, right at the beginning of the year, the 6th of January riots or insurrection or whatever you want to call it was genuinely shocking, as we discussed at the time. But I still hoped then that Trump had been an outrider and Biden's election would return us to a more stable and familiar form of American politics. I thought that if anyone was going to be able to bring warring sides together, it was surely Biden with his lifetime's congressional experience and centrist policies. But as the inauguration came and went and the year passed, that all seemed increasingly unlikely. You and I have talked before about this on the podcast, but the tone of the American debate has become increasingly dark. Even since you and I last spoke, commentators as sober as Gregory Treverton, the former chair of the National Intelligence Council, have written about the serious prospect of civil violence or even civil war in the US. And a Washington Post survey recently found that one in three Americans believes that violence against the government can be justified. Now, you don't have to accept that those outcomes are probable to recognise at a minimum that America is going to be looking increasingly inwards until it resolves its political and social problems and those problems increasingly look to be structural, and how it does that is going to be very much up in the air. So the result for Australian policy, I think, is that we cannot depend, as we could always do in the past, on a broad continuity of US strategic ambitions and policies, whoever the occupant of the White House might be, nor can we be certain of the role the US will play in carrying the banner for democracy globally? Now, look, I, I don't think I'm making a big or controversial claim here. You just need to read the American debate from the New Yorker on you know, one side to Fox News on the other to see it. Mm. And I'm not saying that the Australian policy response needs to be backing away from the relationship or the alliance. I'm just saying that it will become more difficult for us to manage the relationship. The one vein of continuity between the two sides of the American polity is the strategic resolve to confront China, and our leaders have so far managed to bridge the political divide by focusing on that 
issue. But it's possible to see a time coming when even common ground on China is not going to be enough for us to be able to remain neutral on domestic developments. I mean, you know, think about what we would have to do in the case of a contested national election, for example, as so many Americans are talking about at the moment. A neat division of the world into democracies and authoritarian states is already becoming harder to sustain without throwing the US into the mix as well. So that was my big international surprise of 2021. I feel more uncertain about the US at the end of the year than I did at the beginning. For the rest of it, you know, China's confidence, assertiveness and the increasing power of Xi Jinping, the continued failure of the multilateral system to deliver as the great powers looked inwards and our collective inability to deal effectively with climate change or COVID-19. I think all that panned out pretty much as I expected. What about you? What did you make of the year? Yes, that's very interesting, Alan. I also focused on the US um, for my answer to this question, although you know, I unsurprisingly tried to do so through an explicitly theoretical lens by asking myself, you know, how has my model of international politics changed? What priors or assumptions were confirmed or, or need updating? And when thinking about the biggest lessons, the headlines, my first inquiry is about structural or systemic changes. And so what was useful about the year 2021 from a theorist's or a modeler's perspective is it offered us this nice, sharp, clean discontinuity in a key causal variable, as you said, Alan, the change from Trump to Biden in the White House. And this allowed us to see what behavior by the US was a function of Trump, the man and the political movement, and what was bipartisan and thus sort of indicative of a more permanent trend or shift. And we've talked a lot about the differences and similarities between the two administrations all year, Alan, so I won't rehash that. All I'll say is that neither America under Biden's leadership nor the world's response, and especially that of China, gave me reason to doubt the growing strength of what I see as the three most important structural trends in world politics right now. The first is the changing balance of power. You know, we're seeing a decline in the relative capabilities of the US, in part because of this domestic paralysis, which has been confirmed through this year. And that, of course, is, is, is reducing the scope of Washington to act alone internationally. Second, the growth in major power rivalry. You know, we're seeing the breadth and depth of the conflict of interests between the US and China growing. And there are multiple reasons for this. But the two core structural reasons are the decline in the US's relative power or the convergence of relative power between the two and the nature of interdependence in the 21st century, meaning that their interests have you know, broader and deeper ways to come into conflict and create mutual perceptions of threat. And the third, and this is to echo a point you made, Alan, the broader trend, I think, towards political and economic closure. And this is especially true amongst the major powers, the US and China, and I think in part that's driven by their rivalry. But this is also true more broadly throughout the international system. I'm not saying America under Biden is more closed than Trump. I think that the opposite is true, but that even in a reversion to a, a long-term trend, this is a trend towards closure. So, Alan, before we move on to my second question, we've both flagged the same issue here, so let's stay with it for a moment longer. and. Let me play devil's advocate. Well, 
no one could deny America's political dysfunction, has it really translated into a changed international actor under Biden? From a different perspective, you could say that the US re-engaging on climate, re-upping its commitment to multilateralism, perhaps even using the AUKUS agreement, represent a more orthodox US, albeit one facing a different balance of power. So even if we were to posit a counterfactual where Biden enjoyed a much more functional domestic political landscape and a meaningful, there was no meaningful percentage of Americans who wanted to overthrow the government or thought that violence was acceptable, if we had this stability, would it really translate into a different America on the international stage? So my question, I guess, is, is your assessment, Alan, of the increased uncertainty about the U.S., coming from what you're observing about the US under Biden internationally, or is it how you are seeing this domestic dysfunction going to play out into the future? For example, if I told you that the GOP nominee in 2024 was not going to be Trump, but a slightly more normal, maybe somewhat Trumpy politician like Ron DeSantis of Florida or Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, would that make you feel any better? Look, it's a fair point. I I think it's both things. I think it is what Biden is doing and how domestic dysfunction is playing out. They're both interrelated. I agree that under Biden, we've seen a reversion to more orthodox US policies on alliances and multilateral institutions, but the drag on him coming from the internal political divisions inside Congress and from what both sides of politics acknowledges a greater reluctance on the part of the American people to take on overseas commitments is changing. That's all changing the starting point for policymakers. So what Biden is doing abroad, withdrawal from Afghanistan, reluctance to take on new trade agreements, supports my overall judgment that the certainty we used to have that American policy would continue no matter who occupied the White House. And that's been, look, that's been an absolute truism throughout most of my professional life. That no longer applies. If Congress, which under the US Constitution has such an important role in US foreign policy, has no overlapping centre, which is demonstrably the case now, we're in trouble as well as them. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we both agree that the threat to US democracy posed by by Trump, by hardcore Trump supporters, and by their enablers in the Republican Party, that's real. And if the 2024 election is somehow stolen or interfered with, we're in a very different world and the challenges for Australian foreign policy are going to be immense. But to me, Trump as a political figure is unique. You know, we've, we're seeing... Many other Republican politicians try to emulate him, and no one has come close to succeeding so far. So if the big if, if the country can get past him with its political institutions intact, how will it define its interests? How much different, for example, was Trump's foreign policy from that of a mainstream conservative US president? On climate, on Iran, on China, probably not very much on his focus on military power, probably not very much either. Yes, on trade, there were differences, certainly differences on multilateralism and his ruthless transactionalism and complete disregard for liberal values around the world. Yes, these were real differences. But I think America's calculations of interests post-Trump 
could continue to trend in an isolationist, sort of anti-elitist direction in, in the mold of Andrew Jackson, who was the US's first populist president. Nevertheless, though, I, I still see strong structural reasons for US leaders and the US political system con- to continue to calculate the need to engage with the outside world because it remains in America's interest to do so. So for me, this all this sort of, you know, you know sort of pans out to making, I think, the rivalry with China as being more likely to have the most decisive impact on your know, US foreign policy over the next decade rather than political dysfunction. Assuming we can get past 2024, of course. Hmm, um, yeah. Anyway, let's move on to my second question. Did the world's experience with COVID-19 across the past year affect how you see trends in international affairs? Right back at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote somewhere that it would be a test of the effectiveness of governments, whether they were democratic or authoritarian. So suddenly we've been looking at how effective a government was, not what sort of model it had. And that's certainly been the case. We've seen competent governments of both types. I mean, you know, centrist examples take Singapore and and Finland, for example, and we've seen incompetent governments of both types. Every country has been hit in different ways and has had particular challenges to address. But I still think that we can take the handling of COVID as a reasonable proxy for the capacity of that state to act effectively in the world. Everywhere, the, the pandemic reinforced the trend to a selfish variety of nationalism and subnationalism. COVID was all about us. Time and again, the richest countries failed to deliver on our promises on issues like sharing vaccines. And in the developing world, the impact of the economic crisis was more severe than COVID itself. What about you? Yeah, continuing on from my previous answer, COVID didn't change much for me because I haven't observed the pandemic's impact strongly changing any of the key variables in my model. It didn't affect the balance of power. You know, China's domestic system did very well and is continuing to do well to control outbreaks. But on the other side, it looks like the country is going to need to stay locked down for a long time, maybe another year or more. And the lack of success of the Chinese vaccines, I think, is undermining their diplomacy and maybe on some level the attractiveness of, of their model. In contrast, the US has led in the creation of these amazing vaccines, but then overall its policy program has been chaotic and a mess. And as you said, Alan, Washington and the rich democracies generally have been unable to leverage vaccines into tangible diplomatic gains. That's the balance of power question. Then if we turn to sort of the calculation of interests, again, I don't see any major recalculation except to echo your point, Alan, that it is exacerbating this trend towards closure, you know, be, partly because I think of the psychological impacts of the of the pandemic, but also I think because of the revealed supply chain fragilities. You know, everyone wants now a secure pharmaceutical supply chain and is trusting global value chains to deliver it much less. And I think maybe you could say it's exacerbated US-China tensions a little bit, but I don't think that was that's much compared to the the long-term trend. To complete the theoretical story, you could ask whether the pandemic is affecting how identities and interests are even constructed. And that's an interesting question maybe for another time, but in short, I don't see a tangible change. But I've got a follow-up to your answer, Alan. 
did your assessment of governmental competence change in the past year or even in the past few months? I certainly agree that at the end of 2020, there seemed to be a clear divide between competence and incompetence. But now, thinking about Australia's struggles in particular over recent months, the need for China probably to stay locked down for much longer, the picture seems messier to me. Right now, my view is that every government has struggled in its own way and that it's probably a bit of a wash then on the competence front. And that, of course, contributes to my assessment that the pandemic hasn't changed all that much. I mean, what do you think? Look, it's true, of course, that all governments have struggled and that some, including Australia, have looked better at some times than others, including the past week. The science has changed as we found out more about the virus and that's altered the calculations of governments. And the balance of risk between health and the economy and other social goods is always going to be up for debate. But I still think it's possible to distinguish between those governments that were essentially driven by science and health advice and those where populism or desire by leaders to use the virus as an excuse to consolidate power prevailed. And it's also true that the former delivered better outcomes and just as importantly, will be better prepared for what comes next. And so if you want an example of lost opportunity, I you know, I reckon you just have to look at, at Brazil here. You, you know, we could be seeing an entirely different Brazil in the in the world if its government had had been more competent at dealing with this. I concede your point that the winners and losers may have been reasonably predictable. But I still think that the consequences are going to be with us for a long time. Mm. And Brazil, of course, has an election this year, so that's going to be extremely revealing. My third question, putting aside the biggest picture macro lessons, are there any other trends that you saw as emerging or crystallising across the year? Well, I I think this is in some ways the most interesting question of all because the new trend for me was the signs we're seeing of a reversal of the long period that academics and pundits called the Great Convergence, in which we saw big reductions in the gap between the developed and the developing world. I don't know if you remember, but in one of the reading, listening and watching segments last year, I recommended a paper called Global Asymmetries Strike Back, which was written by Jean Pisani Ferry, an economist from the Bruegel Institute in Brussels. That really struck a chord with me. Pisani argues pretty persuasively that as a result of economic concentration, of digitization, the power of the US dollar, and the increased securitization of international economic policies, that asymmetries within the global system are not only more entrenched than we believed until recently, but that they're also resurgent. We'll have to wait a while to see, but given that one of the most important and beneficial strategic shifts for Australia over the past 40 years has been the emergence of a more prosperous neighbourhood and a rising Asian middle class, a reversal of that trend signals new challenges for us. Do you mean that mostly in an economic sense, Alan, in terms of the loss of markets for Australia? Or do you think a widening of the gap between developed and developing 
will have political consequences too? And, and if so, what would they be? Well, e- economic shifts have political consequences, of course. Or what is geoeconomics for, may I ask? <laughs> Indeed. Uh, my, my expectation is that a growing development gap internationally will eventually lead to the same sort of sharper political divisions that we've seen at the national level. Look, a, a really startling statistic I read recently, and I'll, I'll come back to the book that I read it in in our final segment, was that according to an Oxfam report to Davos, the World Economic Forum, the world's richest 1% in 2019 had more than twice as much wealth as the other 6.9 billion people on earth put together, and that the 22 richest men in the world had more wealth than all the women living on the continent of Africa. So that's 2019, so it was a process already underway pre-pandemic, but it's likely to be getting worse as the world economy grows sluggish and globalisation stalls, and that's going to lead to ripe pickings for states which want to play on discontent and vulnerabilities. The the sense that we're all part of a mutually dependent economic system in which all can have a part is going to disappear. And as I said just before, for Australia, that's one crucial reason why Southeast Asia was transformed from a region of conflict in the 1960s and 70s to one where the guns fell silent And the Asian miracle began after the 1980s with all the benefits that we derived from that. Very interesting, Alan. In some ways, it feels like we're returning to our discussion about the Global Trends 2040 report. Yeah, yeah. Except we're not talking about 2040, we're talking about about 2022. Yeah. 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 On your point, I would add that one, I think, real structural impediment is that the path to industrialization and, and prosperity for many developing countries, is now becoming very murky. You know, For the Asian tigers, including China, it involved leveraging cheap labour to develop an export-led model of manufacturing. But it may be true now that the role of capital is simply too important. Technology is too sophisticated for this kind of model to persist, and that's leading to what economists are calling premature deindustrialization in those countries that have not yet even reached middle-income status. And that, of course, as you say, will have profound consequences for both domestic and international politics. Look, I don't, I don't have anything really new to add on this question that hasn't come up on, on previous episodes. So let me just provide a couple of summary points. One, we have the continued decline in, in broad-based multilateral cooperation, but maybe the rise of minilateral cooperation. Two, the critical importance of sub-state actors to provide both technical and political solutions to our biggest problems, and I'm thinking of vaccines and and climate change here. Third, the continued emergence of a a balancing coalition against China, although I do think we're now entering the most interesting phase where the small and medium-sized swing states, you might call them, are going to face the hardest choices and trade-offs. And fourth, to emphasise an earlier point, my assessment is just that All the external shocks and events that we saw across the year haven't really shifted the trajectory of increasing major power rivalry and greater closure. I'm thinking about on top of the pandemic, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the coup in Myanmar, a potential Ukraine invasion, and for Australia, the AUKUS agreement. All of these, I think, 
fit into these trends or at least haven't pushed back against them. But let me, you know, mention of August, let me bring this now to Australia. Can you give us your summary of 2021, Alan? What did the year teach you about Australia in the world? I think you could best summarise Australia's 2021 as a response to a fear of abandonment, Darren. Oh, what an interesting phrase, Alan. Fear of abandonment. It, it tickles my memory. Hang on, do I recall that you wrote a book with that exact title? And I'm sorry, I, I simply can't remember with certainty if this has come up on the podcast before, but am I right that there is a new edition of your book on the history of Australian foreign policy available now? It's so good of you to remember, Darren. Uh, as it happens, yes, a new updated edition did come out during the year and is available at all good bookstores or on the Black Ink website. <laughs> Sorry. More, more, broad, more broadly, though, we've got to give up this running joke. It's reaching, reaching the, uh, the end of its life. More broadly, how did I summarise 2021? How did, what did I learn about Australia in 21? Well, the discourse darkened. China cemented its position as the central organising principle for almost every dimension of Australian international policy, from Antarctica to AUKUS and from the South Pacific to the multilateral system. There were some big shifts, AUKUS, as I said, and the long-term consequences of the possible development of nuclear-powered submarines for Australia, plus the consequences of that for our relationship with France. The in-person Quad Summit hosted by Biden, and we can debate where that's going to end. Our informal participation in the G7 meeting, and though it came formally this year rather than last, the signature of the reciprocal access agreement between the Japanese and Australian armed forces, which was signed virtually when Prime Minister Kishida had to cancel a visit here. Now, I think that's an important and valuable development, which we talked about last year, even though it was over-egged in parts of the media. We learnt, I think, an important lesson that you've drawn attention to, Darren, that whether you're China addressing Australia or the US addressing Russia or Iran, economic coercion, especially trade coercion, is mostly a blunt and inefficient in instrument to force change. Mm. Well, when I've thought about how 2021 affected my model of Australian foreign policy, I've been focused on the prominence of great and powerful friends, as everyone knows that phrase now. Because again, the change in administration in Washington offered up to this academic, at least, a nice quasi-experiment, as you say, given that other factors in Australian foreign policy were mostly held constant with Prime Minister Morrison in charge throughout the year. And as you astutely observed across the year, Alan, what we saw following the change in administration in terms of rhetoric from our Prime Minister and his leadership team was a bit of a pivot away from a real focus on sovereignty to one more on freedom, you know, one that's less about negative globalism, to think back to his Morrison's famous Lowy speech in, in 2019, and more focused on democracy and, and, and promoting democracy. But what did not change? You know, the PM kept his relentless focus on the national interest. We saw a continued scepticism on China, as you said, as a, a main organising principle of Australian foreign policy. And I think any lack of, of, of change on climate is also revealing. My other lesson is the reality of the very tough strategic environment that we face and the sheer degree of difficulty 
of the policy choices that we'll need in response. AUKUS is going to be very hard, for example. Look, let me let me jump in, Darren. Can we mutually agree never to use the term AUKUS on its own again? And I know I just did that before, so I'm not singling you out. <laughs> but, what, but, but, but when you say AUKUS is going to be very hard, do you mean that a move to nuclear-powered submarines will be hard? That's certainly true. Or do you mean that agreements on the exchange of technology and uh, and information will be hard? They'll certainly be complicated, but it's something we've been doing for a long time with the US and the UK now. I, I keep getting back to the point that I made so many times for a development which the government claims to be of great importance to our security, the absence of any formal public statement or on-the-record account of what is involved in AUKUS means that we can't talk with any precision about what the issues are. Well, I mean, still, as a wily old DFAT boss of mine used to say, if you piss into the wind for long enough, the direction will eventually change. So (laughs) here I I stand continuing to urinate. (laughs) Well, that's an amazing turn of phrase, Alan. But I guess just as as John Matter-Keynes wrote that in the long run we're all dead, it might matter how wet you get before the wind changes. True, true. So, look, Alan, you're right to demand precision. I did mean the submarine deal primarily, although while I agree in, in theory that a further deepening of cooperation on technology is not as difficult because we have a long history of doing so, I still wonder whether we've really faced any major trade-offs yet. And I think... We haven't, and these are looming on the horizon. Like, what will we do, for example, if a particular Chinese technology unquestionably becomes the market leader in a field and end users, whether that's Australian consumers or or Australian companies, demand access to that technology despite the security risks? And you kind of sort of have seen this with TikTok, but again, it's not nearly, you know, it's not fundamental to the Australian economy in any way, shape or form. So I don't know what's going to happen. My point is simply to observe that in a relative sense, I think our cooperation on these issues with allies and partners so far on technology and indeed our regulation and exclusion of untrusted technologies has come with relatively fewer trade-offs and that this could very well change very quickly. And in any event, making the trite observation that the submarine venture is going to be hard cannot be done without the counterfactual, that the other options involved perhaps even greater risks and difficulties, and the government judged that this was the most acceptable path forward. Yeah, look, that may be so. It presumably did that, Darren, but it certainly hasn't laid out these risk-benefit calculations in ways that would help the rest of us assess the judgment. And anyway, my point is just let's not use AUKUS to describe this sort <laughs> of uh, complex and important you know, interaction of different different issues. Absolutely, Alan. Okay, well, let's finish off by looking forward a little bit. It's a fool's errand normally, or always actually, to try to predict the future with any precision, but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun with some speculation and maybe tinged with a bit of advice. So let me frame my question this way. What is one expectation and one hope you have for the year ahead? And let's answer that question together in two parts, starting internationally and then turning to Australia. So, Alan, for the world, what is one expectation and one hope that you have for the year ahead? 
Okay, well, I'm completely conscious that it is, as you say, a fool's errand, but as no one at all is depending on me to get this right, I'm going to take take my chances. I reckon 2022 internationally will be a pretty calm year. Of the great powers, Washington is going to be focused on the midterm elections at the end of the year and on the state of the economy and domestic concerns, including voting rights. Xi Jinping and the CPC have a lot riding on the 20th Party Congress, also at the end of the year, and my guess is that they will be in full control freak mode and unlikely to embark on adventures with uncertain outcomes. In Europe, the new German government will be juggling its factions and learning its business. France is going to be preoccupied with its elections Boris Johnson uh, is likely to be on the defensive. Only Putin looks to have incentives to act in Ukraine, but the people I trust most on this question think he's less likely to act than to stake out a position. Now, feel free to come back and rubbish me all you like when something goes pear-shaped in Iran or China confronts a US warship in the South China Sea, but I'm chilling out. One exception, of course, I do have an exclusion clause in my contract for Kim Jong-un and North Korea. God knows what they might do. Indeed. Now, as as for hopes, you've got to remain tethered to reality. But given what billions of people are going through at present, one objective that's ambitious, that would send a reassuring message around the world that Australia could usefully contribute to and which lies within reach is the negotiation of a new global pandemic instrument as recommended last year by the WHO appointed independent panel that we we talked about uh, headed by Helen Clark and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf called COVID-19 make it the last pandemic. In November, the WHO's governing body, the World Health Assembly, agreed to begin negotiations, which was good. A legally binding treaty, which is what the panel recommended, would probably face problems from both China and the United States. But a slightly more flexible accord, which could help ensure a more effective, coordinated international pandemic response next time around, that's certainly possible. Negotiations are likely to go through to May 2024, but workers already underway and I hope that goes well. And just one more hope if I can if I can squeeze it in Darren I, I've been reading over Christmas reflections by several Australians who've had long-term involvement in Afghanistan about the trauma of the end game there both for the Afghan people of course but also for those who were trying to help. The humanitarian crisis is now indisputable. And the UN has launched a campaign to raise $7 billion for assistance. So it's really crucial that all of us who are involved there, including the US and Australia, work out how to lose a war in a way that does least possible harm to the Afghan people. And so that's an urgent and pressing hope as well. Well, Alan, I was going to say much the same thing. So if you're wrong, I'll be wrong too in terms of expectations. For me, the structural incentives for both the US and China are to keep tensions in check. I do think a Ukraine invasion is a real possibility and that will really test the EU 
I think it will also be illuminating in terms of how Beijing responds and perhaps we'll have to return to Ukraine in an episode very soon. But for me, generally, the most interesting unknowns are economic more so than geopolitical, putting to one side you know, random acts by Kim Jong-un that we can't yeah. possibly predict. You know, we have inflation in the US, we have China continuing to deal with outbreaks and a zero COVID policy with its borders closed. We have severe energy pressures in Europe exacerbated or perhaps contributing to the crisis in Ukraine. So let me actually one-up you and give three hopes, Alan, from most likely to least likely. On the most likely camp, I just hope that Biden visits Asia and actually meets with multiple Asian leaders. Look, it's not a hard one, but it hasn't happened yet. And of course, it's not a substitute for substantive policy, but I have very low expectations of the US on its Asia policy front. And so just visiting, I think, could be a good place to start. Second, on a more specific issue, I hope that we see accelerated efforts to combat money laundering. There is a lot of evidence. Many of the most problematic autocracies in the world are led by autocrats who use their positions of power to accumulate personal wealth and then stash it in the West, especially through buying property through shell companies and things like that. I think an essential part of protecting democracy around the world and trying to dampen some of this reactionary populism is making it harder to stash this wealth offshore. And there's a good review piece by Anne Applebaum in The Atlantic this month that I'll link to on this topic. Third, maybe the least realistic, but I do hope that we see a leadership succession plan from the Chinese Communist Party. Everyone assumes now that Xi Jinping will secure an unprecedented third five-year term as China's leader, and many think this could well go longer. As my colleague and friend Nathan Atchell told a Canadian newspaper just this week, quote, succession is the Achilles heel of Leninist political systems. Every political disaster in communist countries has ultimately been about succession, end quote. So if any of our PRC colleagues are listening, There are lots of good reasons to do some succession planning and share this with the world. Anyway, Alan, let's finish with Australia and the world again. Do you have one expectation and one hope for us? My expectation is that those of us with a serious interest in Australian foreign policy will face a pretty fallow period between now and the federal election. Both sides of politics will be speaking in broad slogans to a largely disinterested public, papering over any perceived vulnerabilities of their own and overstating differences with the other side in the interests of product differentiation. So we're in for a frustrating few months, I think. But my hope is that whatever the election result, we will see later in the year a reassertion of the role of foreign policy with less scratchy and more coherent accounts from the government of its international aims and international strategy linked more closely and effectively to the aims and resources available to us, and that we'll be able to reassert ourselves as less of a bit pyre and trusty sidekick on the international stage and to reverse the contractions and hunkering down of the past few years and expand our horizons. I agree with that, Alan. We're, we're agreeing too much today, Darren. Have you noticed, <laughs> have you noticed that? We'll have to, to articulate some sharp differences next time around. Maybe we can argue about the expansion of NATO or something. We'll see what comes along. But look, a slight disagreement in that I'm not sure I will feel as frustrated as you if 
things are merely fallow, as you describe them on the foreign policy front during the election campaign, because elections are obviously not a time for deep policy discussions. And my hope is that we avoid a full-blown national security slash khaki election, since regardless of the outcome of that election, I think that would do harm to Australia's foreign policy interests. Otherwise, I don't really have any concrete expectations. I'm curious to see how the DFAT reorganisation goes. It does seem like there is going to be a greater focus on Southeast Asia, although I don't think much money has followed that reorganisation yet. And I'm curious to see you know, the new leadership style of the, of the relatively new secretary, given her unique professional background and how that's going to influence the department over the next year. With that, let's do our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what do you have for us? I've been reading Aftershocks, Pandemics and the End of the Old International Order by Colin Carl and Thomas Wright. Carl is now the Undersecretary of Defence for Policy in the Biden administration and Wright is Director of the Centre on the United States and Europe at Brookings. The value of the book for me, and I quoted from it before, was its strong historical and global perspective. It begins with the 1919 Spanish flu and makes a good case for its role in derailing the Paris Peace Conference, especially because of its physical impact on Woodrow Wilson and uh, with all the consequences of that failure for the world. And it looks in a serious, detailed, but really interesting way at political and economic impacts of the pandemic in places as diverse as Bangladesh, Rwanda, Bolivia, sort of places that just haven't appeared in the Australian commentary about it, as well, of course, as the more familiar stories of the US, China and Europe. I wouldn't draw quite the same conclusions for the future as the authors do, but it's a very fine work and written under amazing time pressure. Mm, Absolutely. Well, I've finally finished a book called Six Faces of Globalisation, which is written by my ANU colleague, Anthea Roberts, and Nicholas Lamp of Queen's University in Canada. And I want to say it's definitely one of the most important books on political economy that I've read in many years. In the book, the authors outline six narratives of globalization and highlight the strengths and weaknesses of each. And the six are, first, the establishment narrative, second, left-wing populism, third, right-wing populism, fourth, corporate power, fifth, geoeconomic, and sixth, the global threats narrative. And look, we could spend an entire episode discussing the book, and maybe we should at some point in the future, but let me give two core reasons why I think their work is so important. First, you know, if you want a single source that explains to you the dual nexuses between domestic and international politics and between politics and economics, I think this book is a great one-stop shop to do so. And critically, I think the book takes each of the six narratives seriously. It does not condescend, but outlines robust intellectual cases for what are widely divergent positions. I mean, if you want to understand Trump and and, and, and reactionary right-wing populism, this is a great place for a short overview of what that looks like. And I think this ability of the authors to empathise with these positions and then organise what are often incoherent narratives into a coherent narrative I think is a real strength and really I think summarize I mean you'll see strands of multiple conversations that we've had on this podcast Alan appearing in this book in a, in a really nice neat coherent way. 
And that alone, I think, is is worth getting yourself a copy. But second, on, on a personal level for me, the book has actually caused me to revisit my model of international politics somewhat. You know, as listeners might be able to guess, I tend to start when thinking about foreign policy and international relations with sub-state actors like individuals and companies and, and groups and then ask what their interests are and then model political contestation inside these individuals, inside these countries to work out how foreign policy is is formed and, and sort of captured by certain slices of the of interest groups. But there is an assumption in my model that individual interests are relatively well-defined and, and fixed. And what the book's focus on narratives reminded me is that most people don't have well-defined interests and will often take their cues from political leaders. And those cues will come in the form of narratives. So the stories that get told about how the world works, why your life is difficult and why you're feeling frustrated or alienated, these stories in turn shape interests as much as interests shape the stories themselves. And thus they really are an essential element for how we understand politics, whether domestic or international. And so it's not often a book makes me really fundamentally revisit how my own model is built. And so I can't give a higher recommendation or higher praise than that. Yeah, look, uh, it was actually one of my Christmas presents, Darren. So it's it's next on the reading list for me and I do look forward to it. Excellent. Well, let's finish there. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank Mitchell McIntosh for outstanding audio editing and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you again soon. 